this afternoon we're talking about uh, God fading away. There's the full title, continuing for the classical attributes of, uh, of God. You'll see what my concern is and at least a gesture towards what I think is the solution to the concern, but that will be much, not much more than just a, a little gesture towards it. I won't be able to unpack the solution. We can explore it more in Q&A or, or over a, a meal. But just so you... Hey, you want to do it again? You ready? All right, go. Way to go, Dr. Carver. I appreciate that. So you go to it, 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 the, uh, the slides. I have a lot of quotations in there that I'm not going to talk about today. I'm not going to read them to you or anything. You can get the citations and quotations off the PDF deck. So if you weren't here for the earlier sessions on the instructions, you go to my website at richardghow.com, and you'll click on the Resources tab there at the top. Uh, see where it's blinking, and that'll take you to this page. It gives you four choices. The most relevant one here is the PDF decks where I make a PDF document out of the PowerPoint slides. So when you uh, choose PDF decks, you'll see them all alphabetized more or less, and you're welcome to download any of those. You'll want to look particularly for the one God fading away. Uh, now what do I mean by God fading away? What, what, what in the world's going on here? Uh, increasingly, the, what I call the classical attributes of God, or what are called, uh, are being forgotten or even outright denied. And here's the, the kicker, even by evangelical theologians. If you're like me, you probably don't lie awake at night too worried about what liberals are up to. Because you don't expect anything out of liberal Christianity but bad theology and such. I mean, so you, it's not startling. What startles me in a number of areas of evangelical thinking is what is happening among evangelicals. There's a whole other presentation or part of another presentation I do on, on inerrancy. And inerrancy, I was a casualty of the most recent, until today, the most recent controversy surrounding the inerrancy of scriptures back in the 70s, uh, primarily climaxed in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, and I was a casualty of that as a, as a young Christian and a Bible student, theology student, and I wasn't prepared for the challenges of higher criticism and the documentary hypothesis and these kind of things. And uh, I made a reference to that already about the International Council of Biblical Energy. So that's a concern of mine, which is not the topic. But another concern is how these classical attributes of God, whatever those are, are fading away among evangelicals. Again, I'm not particularly surprised at what radical theologians are or whatever. So what do I mean by classical attributes of God? Well, first of all, an attribute, if you're not familiar with this term in this context, an attribute is our characteristics of God's nature and His actions. So we, as we characterize and label various aspects of God's uh, nature and or His actions, those are called His attributes, and we'll look at some examples. So classical attributes then to say they're classical means they've been the dominant view about God throughout church history. So if you just combine these two uh, definitions, so classical attributes would be characteristics of God's nature and actions that have been the dominant view about God throughout church history. Now, to say that they've been the dominant view, that's not an argument that they're true. 
It might be an argument that they're true in Roman Catholicism, but typically Protestants ha have to have a little bit more than that's the way we've always done it. You know, Protestants, uh, the rally, one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was give me chapter and verse because we wanted to ground theology uh, in, in uh, revealed truth. So it's not enough then to say that they've always, they've been around for church history. But I do think that even as Protestants, we should take it very seriously when the Christian church has been doing something a certain way, certainly theologically, for so long. We do that, we certainly, we guard very carefully, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. And we still today insist on um, unpacking the Trinity as much as our human minds can along the contours of how it was done as far back as the uh, uh, Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, early 4th century. So that's, we're used to doing things. That doesn't always make it right. Which, by the way, the Trinity is also another thing that we have to be careful about among evangelicals because that's beginning to be, be monkeyed with, but that's a different. So what do I mean then? What are some examples of these classical attributes? Let me just give you examples from various figures from church history. For, for example, Augustine, who's in the mid-300s, early 400s. Here's, how, here's just a list from, from Augustine. And some of these may be obvious what they mean. Some of them maybe not. They may be sort of arcane terms. Aseity, which means self-existence. That, that God's existence is not dependent upon anyone else's causing Him to exist. He just exists in and of Himself. That's called aseity. He's absolute. He's supreme being itself. Uncreated. Immutable, meaning you, He doesn't change. Simple, meaning He's not composed of parts. And the significance of simplicity is anything that's composed of parts must have a cause that pulled those parts together. And anything that's composed of parts could decompose. The parts could separate and that thing would cease to be. So it's essential, I think, to understand God's nature uh, as simple, that is, uncomposed. Omnipresent, pretty familiar with that term. Omnipotent, eternal, timeless, transcendent. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Simple, perfect, good, infinite, omnipresent, immutable, eternal, one, true, living, just, merciful, loving, providential. And by the way, you, 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 you're much more credible in defending these attributes of God if you wear a dinner plate on your head. That's what I've discovered. So I was tempted to just bring a charger or something and just, just set it right here going, what? Well, I just look more theological when I've got one of those on. Okay, so there you go right there, uh, an advocate. Uh, I have a four-volume set on my library shelf that I got at a killer deal. That's why, why I have it. And it's uh, reformed confessions, meaning growing out of the Protestant Reformation, of the 16th and 17th century in English translation. It's four thick volumes of all these confessions of faith. And these confessions of faith more or less grew up around pockets of Christian communities who were severing themselves from the authority of Rome and it was incumbent upon them to define themselves theologically, most often in contradistinction to Roman Catholic theology. But of course you don't have internet, and you can't email, you can't download, well, what are they doing over in Geneva? So all of these municipalities, these little enclaves of Christians across Europe would have to more or less formulate their own confession as much as they could however much they could still communicate with other communities. And so you just have this 
just this flood of confessions of faith over those few centuries from all across Europe. So I just picked a few uh, more significant, perhaps influential confessions. You have the Belgic Confession, 1561. In Article 1 it says, We believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is, is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God, that He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. The 39 articles which are integral to uh, Lutheran theology very early on in the uh, uh, growth of, uh, of Reformation theology. So you got the mid to later part of the 1500s. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body parts, uh, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Francis Turretin, uh, 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 I've been lobbying for a return to the academic wigs there. So I'm threatening to show up. I don't know if you think that'll kick me out, but I'm threatening to show up to one of my classes at SES with long golden locks or long white locks. Go, what, what? This is what Francis Turretin used to wear. All these guys used to wear these things. Uh, I may be overstating it, but I think Francis Turretin is probably one of the most influential figures in American Protestant thinking. Uh, it seems to me that he exerted in some strategic places an tremendous influence on, say, the Princeton theologians of the 19th century Princeton Seminary, which was a, which was a bastion of theology, conservative theology, uh, in the late 19th and into the early 20th century. And his uh, analytics of uh, systematic theology, a big three-volume set. So he's, he's got God as one simple, infinite, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, omniscient, just, good, perfect, loving, gracious, merciful, omnipotent, and sovereign. How about Stephen Charnock? There's another wig for you there. Stephen Charnock. Simple, perfect, good, infinite, omnipresent, immutable, eternal, one, true, living, just, merciful, loving, providential. Interesting thing about Charnock, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he's not necessarily a household name, but uh, how many of you have ever heard of Stephen Charnock? Because it wouldn't surprise me if no one did. That, it's not like, how many of you have ever heard of you know, some famous person? But uh, Charnock's most notable work is a, now a two-volume set titled Discourses Upon the Existence and Attributes of God. Now, you'll find that book almost exclusively in a graduate, master's, or doctoral level theology course. That's where you'll find that book. But that book is just the collection of his sermons to farmers. They, they, weren't, they weren't technicians in theology, his audience. They were just regular people like, like the rest of us, you know, in 17th century England. And I, I, this just, I think there are a lot of churches in America, conservative churches, that wouldn't tolerate a diet of sermons that deep. That's over my head. But you just go, wow, what a commentary on us. Now the only place you find his sermons is in our doctoral or master's level theology courses. That's where you find his sermons. But then you found his sermons on Sunday morning church. That's just what the, that was their staple. So at any rate, uh, and you can still get this really easily. You could get it through Amazon, that, that, uh, the Discourses Upon the Existence of Attributes of God, or sometimes just called The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. 
about the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mentioned that this morning, getting into the 17th century. What does it say? There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the reward of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and will, who by, will by no means clear the guilty. And it goes on. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and of himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and unto, upon them, he is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatever himself pleaseth in his sight. All things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, independent upon the creature. And so as nothing is in him contingent or uncertain, this will be significant in a minute. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works and in all of his commands, to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever, worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Whew. Pretty rich. Charles Hodge. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipotent, holy, just, good, true, and sovereign. Charles Hodge was the main theologian at Princeton Seminary in the late 19th century. I already, already mentioned the, the significance of Princeton and its influence in subsequent American Christianity. So he was the main, main theologian. In fact, uh, uh, when he died, at the Princeton Seminary, you can just track on a graph that it started to deteriorate towards liberalism. And uh, that's why Machen and some of the others at Princeton left Princeton and went to Philadelphia and founded what is now Westminster Theological Seminary to sort of carry on the mantle of conservative Protestant evangelical theology because uh, Hodge had went to be with the Lord and his influence waned and they didn't carry on the mantle and Princeton just became progressively more liberal. How about Robert Louis Dabney? Eternal, one, spirit, simple, immense, infinite, immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, good. Dabney was the personal chaplain to Stonewall Jackson. Um, and he was at Union Seminary in Virginia, not Union up in New York, but Union Seminary in Virginia. Probably the one more readable systematic theologies, at least in my opinion, if you just wanted to get a systematic theology, uh, his is good. Now, Charles Hodge had a son who probably is considered by many to be, uh, uh, excelled his father in his theological acumen. God, one infinite, absolute, eternal, self-existent, spirit, necessary, immense, simple, free, intelligent, omniscient, immutable, sovereign, omnipotent, righteous, good, true, faithful, just, holy. And he wrote a outlines in theology, which is in a catechetical style. So it's question and then, then answer. You know, like the catechisms used to be, the way children used to learn question, what is the chief end of man, answer, that they love God, enjoy Him forever, these kind of things. Lewis Berry Chafer uh, personal, omniscient, omnipotent, holy, just, love, good, true, free, simple, one, infinite, eternal, immutable, omnipresent, sovereign. Who knows who Lewis Perry Chafer is? 
Tell us. All right. Founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. So he was a sort of fountainhead of, uh, of, of uh, American uh, premillennial dispensationalism that Dallas still uh, uh, carries to, the, to this day. And his systematic theology is a seven or eight volume set if you want to invest in it. It's also pretty readable, actually. Uh, how about Louis Burkhoff? Self-existent, immutable, infinite, one, spirit, eternal, omnipotent, or omnipresent, omniscient, True, good, holy, righteous, sovereign, free. Burkhoff also wrote a systematic theology. And there are others that we could pick. I just picked these out. Most of these are in my library, and there are others that you could pick out as, as relevant. And they also commend themselves because it was easy to identify what they thought about the attributes of God because they actually had chapters on things like that in their writing. So it wasn't, didn't take a lot of research to figure out what they thought about the attributes of God. So how is this then becoming a problem. How is God's, how are His attributes, quote, fading away? What, what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let me start out with a worst case example. And as bad as this worst case example is, would that this would be the only problem because it's so bad, it has little influence, I think, beyond its narrow confines within uh, some, some narrow strands of American Pentecostalism. Now, and that, even that wasn't that much. It's now sort of more in the word of faith movement, Benny Hinn and these, these kinds. So would that that was all it was because I think most evangelicals, at least so far, would just go, okay, that's just goofy. Who's going to believe that? The problem is, though, I'm starting with this most extreme example to set the stage because what we're really having to contend with, I submit to you, is quite a bit more subtle and sophisticated. And it isn't quite as obvious to evangelicals, hence... God fading away. The most extreme example would be Finnis Jennings Dake in the Dake Annotated Reference Bible. Every time I go to a Christian bookstore that I've never been in before, I go to the Bible section to see if they sell the Dake Annotated Reference Bible. It's about 50% now. That about half of the stores I've gone in, they sell this in the Bible department. Uh, along with you know, every other study Bible that you, you can imagine. Now, that isn't necessarily a commentary on that, on that Christian bookstore, except, be, except to the fact that most of these Christian bookstores pay little attention to what's on their shelves. That's all a marketing and decision made by the distributor. So the distributor just comes in and fills the shelves so like a grocer would. And so a lot of these are just chain stores. I mean, maybe that's a different problem, but I'm saying the manager probably doesn't even know in fact, I've actually gone to a manager of the store to say, do you realize what Dake says in his study notes? Let me give you an example. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all present where there are beings with whom they have dealings. But they are not omnibody. That is, their bodies are not omnipresent. All three go from place to place bodily as other beings in the universe do. Now, I, I think that that would probably strike... Christians says, well, that just seems outrageous, but it gets worse. God has a personal spirit body, so He doesn't believe these bodily parts are physical. They're spiritual. He has shape, form, image and likeness of man. He has bodily parts such as back parts, heart, hands and fingers, mouth, lips and tongue, feet, eyes, ears, hair, head, face, arms, and other bodily parts. And as I said, they're not physical for Dake, they're spiritual. 
Something caught my eye, however, because I started going, okay, well, wait a minute. I'm not really sure what this might be, but I wonder what spirit hair is. And I'm actually seriously considering that people go, say, Richard, when did you go bald? He go, I'm not bald. I have spirit hair. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but uh, besides the obvious, as you look at that quote, Besides the obvious that you, like me, probably don't think God has eyes and lips and tongues and, or tongue and these kind of things. Besides that obvious, as we would say in Mississippi, reckon what else bothers me about this quote. And maybe it'll bother you too, but I'm not going to presume. But besides the obvious that, well, I'm sure it bothers you how that, that Dake thinks God has lips or whatever. Yeah, that bothers me. But besides that, what, what else do you think bothers me besides those obvious things? I did that once in a class. A student said something like, like that, and another student looked at me and said, Man, you got a finger snap. He said, I've been trying to get a finger snap all semester. <laughs> I said, exactly. Look at all the, bottle, uh, the, uh, the biblical references. Every one of those references says everything that Dake says they say. The contention is, do they mean what Dake says they mean? Now, let's get a little bit more sophisticated, however. From the extreme of the Dake annotated reference Bible, you go to the other extreme of the openness view of God, sometimes called the uh, open theism. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression or not. But open theism is most characterized by its denial that God can know the free actions of human beings in the future. That is, by, they will argue, God cannot know what you will freely choose to eat for lunch tomorrow. He can't know that. This is what they're saying. Now, I haven't argued whether that's good or bad, but I think at the very least you have to admit that's a departure from our heritage as Christians because you look through all of these Reformed confessions, you look through all these uh, stalwart theologians, go all the way back to, the, to uh, Aquinas, and you could, I didn't do Anselm, I didn't do uh, you know, some other, went back to Augustine, you could go back to the church fathers even. You would have to admit, well, to say God doesn't know the future actions of free creatures is a departure. In fact, they say that it's not only a departure from the, from the tradition, they say that's why they commend it, that there's been something corrupted at the very beginning about this tradition. We'll come back to that in a moment. So you may recognize some of these names, people like uh, Clark Pinnock, for example. I'll come back to him in a moment. But Clark Pinnock was probably one of the chief generals in the army defending the inerrancy of Scripture during this most recent stint that I mentioned to you. Uh, uh, that, that gave rise to the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. So he was hard to beat in terms of just intellectual power and acumen. So I'm, I'm just saying he's a good guy in, in so many respects. But Pinnock bought into this uh, open view of God, this, this sort of kind of thing. Uh, some of these others may or may not be famous. Uh, John Sanders or David Bassing. All, they've all written books. You can go to your local Christian bookstore and probably find some of their books on the shelves even to this day. Now, 
even before you get to the question of, well, what are they saying more specifically and what's your arguments against like that, I, 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 I would at least argue that whatever they're saying, it's a whole lot more sophisticated than what Dake was trying to get away with. But I think it, it's born out of the same kind of fundamental error. Uh, now, probably the most famous and significant in this group of open theists is Gregory Boyd, who pastors up in the Minneapolis St. Paul. And I've, I don't know Gregory Boyd personally, but I've been in academic conferences and hearing him present. I've seen him on panel uh, d discussions. And I mean, no one will dispute that this man loves God. No one will dispute that he's got a pastor's heart and that he cares as much about his integrity as I hope I care about mine and vice versa. So I'm not, I'm disagreeing with these guys, but not because I think they're just, they're, they're frothing at the mouth wolves necessarily. But I do think what they are injecting into contemporary evangelical thought is cancerous and it is beginning to metastasize. And it needs to be battled at the level of truth and sound theology, not the level of personalities and stuff. Because he's a, he's a great guy and he's a brilliant uh, theologian, a brilliant uh, thinker and speaker and stuff. So he's probably the sort of uh, the, the captain of the, of, the, of the forces there on this open theism thing. He's really spearheaded that. Early days he used to go, well, I'm, I'm kind of indifferent. I'm open to it. But I think he's gone on to really sign on. He seems to defend it pretty pretty vociferously now. Um, here's John Sanders, The God Who Risks. Uh, David Bassender, The Case for Free Will Theism. That's another expression you would, you, you would hear earlier. It's sort of fallen, fallen out of use now. The most common expression now is open theism. But openness view of God, open theism, or free will theism. These were the terms that you would see in some of the earlier uh, literatures. Here's Clark Pennock's Most Moved Mover, which is a uh, a slap at Aristotle's concept of God as the unmoved mover, which basically move doesn't mean move like locomotion from place to place. It doesn't mean merely that. It means change. He's the unchanging changer. He's the uncaused cause. That kind of concept was how Aristotle understood uh, some, some things about God. You can even go to the internet to the opentheism.org. And, uh, and, and find out different resources. There's an open theism information site that you can go to uh, on the internet. It's, it's pretty widespread. And if you're a hardcore, you can actually get your own open theism t-shirt. Uh, open theism, I might have worn a different shirt today. And so you, you think, well, I might have worn a different shirt too. What's the big deal about that? No, what they mean is that since you could have worn a different shirt than you did wear, then God couldn't have known before now which shirt you were going to wear. Because they would say, if God, let me put it into the future, if this is their argument, if God right now knows what shirt you're going to wear tomorrow, they argue, then you couldn't not wear that shirt tomorrow. Otherwise, He wouldn't know that's the shirt you're going to wear. So they think God's knowledge of the future entails that the future is determined. And so since they're defending free will, this is where the free will part of free will, since they're defending that, which I think most Christians would, say, yeah, I could have worn a different shirt. But does it follow that because I could have done something differently than I did, that God still couldn't know what I 
might have done otherwise? Could he do it? How do you reconcile those two? I'm not suggesting it's an easy question to just answer. Like, I'm just going to rip off a PowerPoint slide and, oh, there it is, and aren't those guys stupid? No, it's not, it's not that. But I do think that they, in their attempt to try to give the answer, something is uh, fatally flawed at the, at the base of it. And I'm going to try to uh, sneak up on what I think that is and what I think the solution to it is uh, here in due course. Here's an argument that Gregory Boyd gives. Scripture also frequently depicts God as experiencing regret, disappointment, frustration, and unexpected outcomes, suggesting that the future is to this extent composed of possibilities rather than certainties, that is, possibilities for God. I mean, after all, when, he took, when God told Abraham to offer up Isaac, and they get all the way up, he puts Isaac on the altar, and then the, and then the raises the knife to plunge it, and then the angel stops him, and God says, now I know that, that, uh, that, you, that you do believe me. And so the reader, according to these guys, are going, well, obviously then God was going to see how far Abraham was going to go. It's testing to see, which means to them, well, he didn't know what Abraham. I mean, after all, doesn't Genesis say, well, I regretted God that he made man. In fact, they think it's part of the solution. Well, why did, why, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin and plunge so many people into hell, why did He do it? They're going to say, He didn't know He was going to do that. He gave Him the free will. He couldn't have possibly known that Adam and Eve were going to... Were, you know, He knew that was a possibility, but He didn't know it was an inevitability, according to them. So, He was just as surprised as anybody else and regrets it as much. That's why He said. And that's their argument. Notice, interestingly, similar to the Dake issue, Boyd is appealing to Scripture to make his argument. He goes on, It is, I submit, more difficult to conceive of God of ex experiencing such things if the future is not exhaustively settled in his mind than it is if it is in part composed of possibilities. So, it's a lot easier to imagine why would God be described that way if it was the fact that it was all settled in his mind? And Boyd's just going to say, well, maybe it wasn't all settled in his mind. And I have other quotes too, but I'm not going to take the time to do those. You can, you can get the... Um, the PowerPoint for that. So where does that leave us? Well, uh, by the way, one of the things that I'll draw your attention to in the, in the PowerPoint, since I used open theism as an example, but they're not the only example, and since the, the main characteristic of open theism is this idea of God's knowledge of the future, I have quite a number of classical theologians on the fact of God's existence. I mean, sorry, God's knowledge uh, and His omniscience. I'll just give you maybe an, uh, one or two examples. Here's Charnock again. God knows all future contingencies. That is, God knows all things that shall accidentally happen, or as we say, by chance. And He knows all the free notions or motions of men's will that they shall uh, be to the end of the world. Charles Hodge says, Among the objects of the divine knowledge are the free acts of men. The Scripture abundantly teaches that such acts are foreknown. If God be ignorant of how free agents will act, His knowledge must be limited and it, would, it must be constantly increasing, which is altogether inconsistent with the true idea of His nature. And Dabney says, God has a perfect and universal foreknowledge of all the volitions of free agents. The Scriptures expressly assert it. And it goes on and on and on. Now, I'm not, I'm not appealing to authority to say, well, this is what all these cool guys with long beards, you, this is what they say, so that's got to be good, right? I'm making, initially, just a minimal, weaker claim. Namely, this open theism 
or Dake or whomever else we choose is a departure from our heritage. So just as the Declaration of Independence I quoted this morning said, look, you know, if you're going to split off and start a new country, you better have good reasons for doing it, and you better be prepared to tell those reasons to your fellow man. You don't undertake these things lightly. Well, if that's true of starting a new government, how much more might it be true of, of embarking on a new trajectory theologically within the Christian faith? To say, hey, I came up with a new version of the Trinity. Okay, well, I'm willing to listen to that, but, I mean, you're, you're, you, this, you don't take this lightly. I'm not suggesting that the, because that's the way we've already said it, that that's what makes it true. But I am saying there is a lot of truth, I think, that is discoverable that has manifested in the way the Christian church has gone on to codify and, and explain uh, these kind of things. So I have tons and tons of quotes. So that's why I want you to get the, the, uh, uh, the, the PowerPoint. I won't bother with them. So how do we contend for these attributes? What, what, do, what would I say? Uh, well, you saw how bad Dake was. Let me skip some of these slides That'll, that we, we do. By the way, there, there's what it looks like with all, without all the references. There's all his quotes. Uh, just as an aside, I wonder what Dake thinks about whether God has wings and feathers because it also says that, you know, that God has wings and feathers. And I don't know, I don't know anywhere in the Dake Study Bible where he quotes these verses to argue that God is like a bird or something. So it sounds sort of like I'm being facetious, but this illustrates a principle that I'm going to try to unpack here in a moment as I draw this to a close. You have some challenge to go, well, what do I appeal to exegetically in my hermeneutics, my principles of biblical interpretation? What do I appeal to? What tool do, do I have that allows me to avoid taking these things literally, but rather taking them metaphorically? How do I do that? In fact, it could get even worse because Jesus says he's a door. Do we think he swings on hinges and has a knob? Every door I know, pretty much those doors, that's got a knob and hinges. So if Jesus is a door, why doesn't he have knobs and hinges? Or uh, I heard one guy making a similar point, said Jesus was the bread of life as he made out of flour and water. And, you know, and we, we laughed because, well, it's obviously a figure of speech. Well, is it so obvious? I was talking to a friend of mine at church who pretty much, I think, agreed with me in terms of his embracing classical attributes of God. So I was just using him as a sounding board so I could then use him as an example every time I talk on this subject. And I, and I asked him about Genesis 3. Real odd kind of verse. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So I asked my friend, well, do you believe God has legs? No, I don't believe that God has legs. Well, it says right there that he's, they heard the sound of God walking. You can't walk without legs. I mean, snakes don't walk. So if God's walking and they hear Him walking, then He must have legs. He, he said, no, I don't believe God has legs. I said, so why don't you believe God has legs? He said, well, because in John 4, Jesus says God is spirit. And those who worship Him in spirit, worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Which, by the way, is a reference to Joshua chapter 24. Jesus is in the same place where Joshua gives his sermon in, in, as he's uh, at the end of the book of Joshua. And he's given the same sermon pretty close to the sermon that Joshua gives back there. And of course, Jesus is basically the Greek, uh, Hebrew, Greek, modern, that day modern, of Joshua, same name. 
So I asked my friend, I said, uh, you know, what do you do? Well, he quotes John 4. I said, so what do you do with the Genesis 3 passage? And he said, well, I think it's a figure of speech. And my question was, well, how do you know the John 4 passage isn't a figure of speech? That is, you're using John 4 and say, well, God literally is a spirit. He only, he only figuratively walks in a garden. And I said, how do you know He doesn't literally walk in the garden? He's only figuratively a spirit. How do you know that? That's what I was trying to get him to see. Now, without too much more argument, I would submit to you, boy, you might not want me back in the morning, Pastor. You'll have to decide tonight. You're going to have to get your deacons together and make some serious uh, soul searching here. I don't think that you can fully adjudicate this. Well, which one's a figure of speech? I don't think you can fully do it exegetically. It's not entirely within the text because it's the text itself that is posing the question. What do I appeal to to know this is a figure of speech? Well, the text doesn't tell you it's a figure of speech. Sometimes it might. Well, let me change the metaphor and see if I can give you what I think the answer is, though you don't have to agree with me. A verse that I appealed to earlier today from uh, Isaiah. For you should go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So, when you read that verse, you know that when Isaiah says that trees are clapping their hands, that either he doesn't know what a tree is, or he's insane, or he's using a figure of speech, right? So when you, say, when you read the prophet say that the trees are clapping their hands, it's obvious it's a figure of speech. But why is it clear to you that trees clapping their hands is a figure of speech? Why is that? Why is it so clear to you that that's a figure of speech? You can talk back to me if you want. I said because of what it represents. What, what? Because the sound of trees. No, but I'm not. But, but, but you're getting ahead of me. Before we explain what we think the metaphor is, I'm asking just a simpler question. Uh, PhD people make things more, we make things more difficult. Perhaps you're jumping ahead. When 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 Isaiah says trees clap their hands, it you just immediately recognize it as a figure of speech. Why do you recognize it as a figure of speech? Because trees don't have hands. How do you know trees don't have hands? Hmm? You can see trees. Your experience of trees throughout your life, from childhood to adulthood, you have experienced this tree, that tree, this tree, and you are able, as a rational being, your intellect is able to abstract from all these experiences of individual trees, this universal, remember that expression earlier, called tree. In fact, if I stood here and said, hey, I've got this tree in my backyard, you would instantly know what I meant. I didn't say whether it was an evergreen or deciduous. I didn't say whether it was fruit-bearing, flower-bearing, a sapling, a 60-foot, sick, healthy. I didn't say anything particular about the tree. But as soon as I said, I've got a tree in my backyard, you instantly know. Why? Because your intellect knows what the nature of a tree is, an essence. If Ramon told us, hey, we've got a tree that grows in the Philippines, you'd know, I've never been to the Philippines, and some of you, some of you have, but some of you perhaps have not. But you didn't need to have gone to the Philippines to know exactly what he would mean when he says, hey, we've got a tree that grows in the Philippines. You, are, you already know the universal, the, 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 the abstracted essence of tree. 
In fact, this is a whole rich history of the, a, how we understand and know as, as human beings that, that basically starts with Aristotle as he unpacks these things. I think you would find a lot of it just, just go, wow, this is really cool. Because it answers a lot of questions about skepticism, but that's a different issue. So the upshot is, well, look, when somebody describes a tree in a way that goes contrary to the nature of what a tree is, I can know that he's speaking in figurative language. If I already know for other reasons he's not telling a joke, or he's not insane, or he doesn't understand the word tree. I would submit to you that in principle, it's exactly the same way with God. When people describe God in characteristics that are incompatible with the nature of God, then you know what they're saying, either as they don't understand the word God, or they're insane, or something, or they're speaking figuratively, like Isaiah. But here's the hard part. Whereas with a tree, you learned the nature of tree by just experiencing, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, trees throughout your life, and your intellect is able to abstract from all these particulars this universal called tree, just like we talked about humanity. You experience this human, that human, this human, male, female, black, white, tall, short, fat, skinny, and you're able to have human as a, as a universal in your intellect. You do that with tree or dog or whatever. And you do that by virtue of your sensory experiences. The rub is, though, you can't do that with God, can you? You don't, you don't, just like you answered me, well, how do you know trees don't have hands? Well, I've seen a tree. Well, how do I know that God can't walk? I can't go, well, I've seen God. No, you can't see God. He's infinite, transcendent. You couldn't possibly see God. So, the challenge is, if I'm making the claim, well, I can know figures of speech in Scripture when those things describe God's in, in ways that He couldn't possibly be by virtue of being God, the challenge for me is, well, how, how do you know what God could or couldn't be like? Here's the most self-serving part of the, my whole weekend, except maybe tomorrow morning I might find a, a way to even be more self-serving when I talk about building a worldview. Here's the most self-serving part of the weekend as a philosopher. For better or for worse, the discipline that explores how are we able to know truths that are truths about elements of reality that go beyond our senses, beyond what we can see, see, hear, taste, touch, or smell? That discipline that deals with that is sound philosophy, whatever that means, whatever sound philosophy looks like. And look, it's, I didn't make this up. It's not my fault, so people can't go, well, yeah, of course you're going to say that. You know, the old joke, if the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail to you. Because you figure, that's the only tool I have, so I've got to just, whatever it is, I've got to hammer it. Well, whatever the problem is, you've got to figure out some philosophical angle to it in order for you to have something to do. Uh, all right, I, I appreciate that criticism, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that, in effect, it's a philosophical question, as a lot of things in apologetics are. The only reason, not the only reason, a major reason, I think, that these attributes of God are fading away. And so that it, it's a lot worse now where you've got the Dakes and the Boyds and the Pinnocks of today, uh, but you didn't have these necessarily in Charnock's day or back. I think the one of the major reasons for that is that the, the philosophical foundation that more or less birthed Western civilization 
in which God providentially nested the coming of Christ to develop sound theology. It was nested in this philosophical context. That, we've been, we've been um, uh, being carried along in that philosophical context for centuries and centuries. But now things are changing. And other philosophical models have come in, especially in, in the Europe and the U.S., and have begun to erode the, the philosophical foundations. So now it doesn't strike people as, as just obviously absurd to say, well, God has spirit hair. Are you kidding me? That doesn't, doesn't it just strike you as just outrageous? No, it doesn't. Even, why? Because the, the sort of philosophical approach to these transcendent issues is faded away or it's been displaced by bad philosophical thinking. And so now people just seamlessly just go, you know, I don't think God knows the future. In fact, I won't show you the quote. You can get it from the PDF deck. But Clark Pinnock, in the last book that he wrote before he went to be with the Lord, said something to this effect. And he says, he's saying this in the context of unpacking more and more implications of his open theism. He says something to the effect, maybe the time has come where we might not need to consider a sense in which God has a body. After all, we got bodies, don't we? And we're in God's image. You know, we can't relate to people that don't have bodies. We relate to each other by our bodies, so why doesn't God do that? You know, and he actually became incarnate, didn't he? So if he became incarnate, maybe he just is and incarnate in the Trinity. You know, he's just going on and on like that. And you just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure your reaction is the same as mine. You just go, how could this even occur in the context of otherwise sound uh, thinking? Well, I think it's because of the influence of bad philosophical thinking. So what would be good philosophical thinking? All right, here's the, here's the drinking from the fire hose slide. This is my last slide here. Because when I put this presentation together years ago, and I gave it at our National Conference on Christian Apologetics, which is coming up in October, by the way, commercial time, largest and longest-running apologetics conference in the country on, uh, at Calvary Church in Charlotte, and, uh, and the dates are some 14th and 15th, I think, of October. It's actually three days, because we have a, a women's conference on Thursday, and then the conference proper is Friday and Saturday, men, men, and, men and women. When I put this together... Because this was something that was bothering me. I thought, this, 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 these attributes of God issue, this is... Look, I could give you examples that I think you would just go, okay, I really like that guy. We study him in my church. You're telling me he doesn't believe in simplicity or he doesn't believe that God is immutable, whatever it is? I go, yeah, you should see how, how much this is creeping into standard contemporary evangelical theology. It's startling to me. So, but when I put the presentation together, <laughs> I'm thinking, hey, I'm ready to go, man. I got all my quotes and all these cool pictures of these people with long beards and, and ap academic wigs and stuff. I got, I got done with it, and I realized, well, you know, I, have, I don't have anything in there as to, well, what do I do? It's like going to the doctor. He's like, you know, that mole looks pretty bad. That could be terminal cancer. Okay, see you later. And you're like, Doc, Doc, wait a minute. What, what do I do with this mole? I'm, you're just walking away. You told me this mole might kill me, and then you walk out the door. Okay, see you later. That's all the time we have for today's. No, you wouldn't do that, would you? You'd grab him and say, come back, or her, and say, come back. Tell me what I do. So I thought, I, I need to at least make some gesture towards it. But it occurred to me, look, there's two things you can do. I'll give you this slide in, in one minute, and then we're done. Uh, you can do that. Or then you can sign up for my classical philosophy course that I'm offering in October at the seminary the week after the uh, conference. And you can stream it online for free. You can audit it. 
You can take it for credit, uh, both master's and doctoral level credit, uh, or you can just do it synchronous, or, or, that is at the same time streaming, or asynchronous, that is after the fact. Just go through uh, the course management system and, and do the lectures. And I try to lead the students all in one week, a whole semester's worth of content from, from the ancient Greeks to, you know, contemporary thinking to contend, well, what is good philosophy? Well, here's what it looks like here. And that's just not going to make any sense. But nothing else I've done probably has made any sense. So why, why make sense at this point? So this is classical theism in 10 not-so-easy steps. You begin with the senses. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. No, right there, Christians are going to go, well, how do you get logic and God and morals and metaphysics out of that? In fact, it's even worse because Christians today will say, you can't get logic, morality, metaphysics, and God if you think knowledge begins in what you see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. To which I would go, well, that would surprise everybody up until about the 16th, 17th century in, in, in Western philosophy. Because Aristotle got all of that starting with the senses. Aquinas gets all of those things. God, metaphysics, logic, morality, none of which you can see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, right? But it begins in the senses. Well, how do you do that? Well, that's what good philosophy will show you how to do. You realize that it is sensible things that you know, sensible things, trees, dogs, people, and not merely properties or qualities or phenomena or qualia, like reds and louds, or even propositions like uh, foundational propositions or properly based. This is for the philosophy students. Because this is what's going on, even in Christian philosophy. They're trying, to, they're trying to distill knowledge into knowledge of qualities. Reds and... It's like, I don't know qualities, fundamentally. I know things. That's a piano. This is a microphone. This is an offering plate. It's things that I know. And by the way, if you think, okay, now I remember why I hated philosophy when I was in college. Uh, I do a presentation called Seeing is Believing? Question mark to try to show, you look in your Bible from as far back as you want in the Old Testament, certainly up all the way through the New Testament, how often God appealed to Israel and then the apostles to their audience, how often that appeal was to what people could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to know that this is the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus Christ is His Son, God in the flesh, and He rose from the dead. And, and, they, and they appeal to... What you could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. It's interesting just to see. And I think it's not a coincidence that assaults on our five senses of what we can see, hear, taste, touch, or smell is so common in our culture. We've been bullied into thinking, well, uh, that sounds like naturalism. That sounds like you're going to end up being a, nat a humanist atheist if you just can uh, start knowledge with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. I say, no, we're, we're being bullied out of that. We should have never given that terrain up to the scientists. To say, oh yeah, if you just start with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, you'll never get God. I go, that's exactly what you'll get. And I can show you how to do that, I would say to them. Anyway, I'll get through the rest of them in, in 45 seconds. Observe that the two most obvious facts about sensible things, that is things you can sense, are that they change and that they stay the same. Puppy dog to a full-grown dog, you don't think every day it's a new dog that came into existence, right? That's the same dog? No, it's the 77th, 77th dog I've had. I just get progressively bigger dogs each day. No, it's the same dog, right? There's something same throughout all its changes, yet it changes. So understanding that their changeness and their sameness 
has something to do with their essences or natures. That is, the kinds of things they are. Recognize that change comes by causes. Notice that the one thing that all things have in common that are real is existence. Everything that's real exists in some sense of the term. Notice further that in sensible things, there's this distinction between the essence of the thing, I'm a human, and the existence of a thing, I'm a being. That's why I'm called a human being. But I could cease to be, couldn't I? And I, and I didn't used to be. So my being is different than my essence. What I am and that I am are distinct in me as creatures. And then you can reason this out. This is what we would do in, in, uh, in the class. If anything exists, then something must exist for which there is no distinction between its essence and its existence. Which is to say, its essence is its existence. It, 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 it is existence itself. Substantial existence. And that only this thing can be the cause of the existence of those things whose existence is not due to their essence. Something must exist in and of itself. If this is what a seity is. Come to understand, these are all, of course, a lot of things you'd fill in. That given what existence is, whatever that is, because we didn't really say a lot, a thing whose essence is its existence has all the perfections of existence itself. Your, your human nature, your nature as a human limits existence according to the contours of humanness. You, exist, you possess all the perfections of existence up to the boundaries of human. A dog up to the boundaries of dog. You know, so it doesn't have rationality, let's say. Or a plant up to the level of a plant, so it doesn't even have sentientness, like seeing him takes and dwelling. But if, you, but if there is a being, and there has to be, whose very essence is just the act of existing itself, then it is just absolutely infinite in all perfections. That's where all these classical attributes come from historically. They didn't, they didn't come from a sound, or I should say, it doesn't come strictly from exegesis. Otherwise, you run into the date problem. Well, it says he has hair. He couldn't have hair. How do you know he couldn't have hair? Because he's infinite existence. And hair is a limited way of existing. It's not infinite existence itself. And you conclude that this is God. So these classical attributes are nested in this classical philosophical grounding of what it is to even be an, a thing like God. And that's where these things are just the, the effulgent uh, unfolding of all of these infinite perfections. So Gregory Boyd uh, deliberately repudiates this classical tradition. He says, that's the problem with Christian theology. It's been too heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And so he thinks he's coming at it sort of this barren, oh, well, I'm not going to really have any philosophical assumption. No, you didn't. You just exchanged one philosophical foundation for another one. So the argument becomes which one is, is, is more likely to be true. That's kind of what we're going to talk about in the morning, though not this technical, in building a worldview. So if you don't already have church commitments on Sunday morning, I invite you to come uh, here in the morning. The workshops will continue, and then, then I'll do the uh, main service on, uh, on building a worldview.